Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that DMT, which is short for dimethyltryptamine, is a compound that's secreted by your pineal gland in your brain. And it's been called the spirit molecule or the God particle. And in medicine, we figured out that DMT is synthesized by your body and the synthesis peaks from 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. And it comes out mostly when you die, uh, when you're a near-death experience, or uh, maybe when you're born. And this is one of those substances that is involved in some of the most famous hallucinogens, such as ayahuasca, which we've talked about on the show before. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guests are actually three people, and they all work together. And this is about drug addiction, and it's about treatment, and it's about hallucinogens. So our first guest is Dr. Martin Polanco, who's the founder and director of the Crossroads Treatment Center in Rosarito, Mexico. And this is an all-inclusive ibogaine detox treatment program that's among one of the best in the world. Ibogaine is one of the most powerful hallucinogens out there, and it is used very precisely 
for people who are addicted to heroin or cocaine. And this hallucinogen comes from Africa rather than the Peruvian rainforest. And they also use 5-MeO-DMT, which we talked about in the cool fact of the day. Our second guest is Dr. Dan Engel, who's a medical director at Crossroads Ibogaine Recovery Center. He's a board-certified psychiatrist and neurologist with a clinical practice in functional medicine and something amazing called orthomolecular psychiatry, which is completely amazing. It's how do nutritional substances like vitamins and minerals affect psychiatry? In other words, will you go crazy if you have too much of or not enough of certain vitamins or minerals? That's cool. He also does integrative spirituality and works with the Temple of the Way of Light Ayahuasca Center in Peru and the True Rest Float Center in Tempe. And our final guest is Deanne Adamson, who's the founder of Being True to You. And she works as an addiction recovery coaching specialist and works around just building transformation and focuses on recovery coach training. So this is a team of people who are approaching this problem where we have people who are, are sick, they're addicted to substances, they're addicted to substances not because they're weak, uh, they're addicted to substances for a reason, and this team of people uses very old substances that have a very profound effect on your psychology and your psychiatry and your neurobiology and even who you are in order to take people from that state of addiction into a state of non-addiction where they're much more in control of their lives. So this is going to be a fascinating conversation. I'm super, super stoked to talk about it. And before we put names to faces, if you're watching on YouTube, you're probably going, what the hell? Dave's wearing sunglasses the whole time he's been talking. If you're in your car, <laughs> if you're at work, you actually don't know. No, I'm admitting it. These are my Erlen lenses. That's I-R-L-E-N. Helen Erlen has been a guest on the show. She figured out that 48% of people have color sensitivities where your brain processes light differently. I'm one of those people. When I wear these custom tint glasses, I have like twice as much energy throughout the day, and I'm under studio lights right now. So I just decided at the last minute, I'm gonna wear my Erlen lenses. I'm gonna look a little bit like a rock star without like the cool hair and all that stuff, but I'm gonna feel good for it. And I became a certified Erlen practitioner exactly 36 hours ago because Helen was up at my house teaching me and our medical director. And I've already found two people who have scoptic sensitivity and showed them that they can read with less energy output just by changing a few color things. So I'm wearing my glasses to celebrate that I'm loving this stuff. And sorry to take us off track there. Let's talk about cool stuff. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Dave. It's also a bit awkward because I've got Martin, Deanne, and Dan, <laughs> and we're on three different Skype feeds. I've never interviewed three people over Skype at the same time. So we will edit this in if necessary, if we talk on top of each other, but I'm hoping we don't do it too much. So let's, let's talk about this. And I think, Dan, I'd like to ask you this first. You're the medical director at a recovery center that uses a substance that's illegal in many countries. Now, there is a medical uh, Hippocratic Oath, uh, a do no harm kind of thing. Is what you're doing in alignment with that? Totally. Okay, how? Well, when you look at the addiction rates nationally and worldwide, they've been going up every year, at least since the, the most recent numbers and data looked at um, from 2001 to 2014. The number of opiate addictions, 
the number of prescription medic- medication addictions, um, drugs of abuse, and those same addictive rates also mirror the morbidity rates. So you've had more deaths with heroin addiction, with opiate medications, with cocaine, with other drugs of abuse. So something is consistently driving the trajectory of both prescription drug use and prescription drug overdose when used inappropriately, particularly on the opiate side, um, in the wrong direction. We know consistently, and again, these are just small studies because no one's done a large, broad-based consumer study at this point for Iboga or Ibogaine, but consistently, when held in the right set and setting and supported with integrative recovery coaching, usually that looks like sober living on the other side of something like Ibogaine, of somebody's coming in for an opiate addiction, we consistently see people do extraordinarily well and above beyond what the standard rate of addiction recovery is in today's medicine. When you look at broad-based comparatives, um, your general success rate for opiate addiction right now in the standard treatment of care model for medicine in the country is about 10 to 20 percent. 10 percent is probably a little bit more accurate, 20 percent is a little bit more robust, um, but that's usually where treatment ranges fall from or fall into. When you look at Ibogaine consistently, again, when held, when held well and recovery, recoaching and integration is in place, the success rate is like 60 to 70 percent. That's four times greater recovery wow. rate from something that is very robust and efficient at helping interrupt addictive neurochemistry. You've just had a 400% success rate comparatively with Ibogaine versus anything in the standard medical arsenal right now. That's why we're curious to study it on a more large population-based, more rigorous orientation methodology so that we can become validated, that we can have these discussions with the larger medical and psychiatric community about what's happening. It's obvious that the current model is not working. The, the rates are going up and up consistently over the last 14 years. So something has to, has to happen. And so that's my personal mission in my professional code of ethics, to be able to do no harm. And I also have a personal mission that was driven by a family crisis when my sister died and she died from addiction and it really called into question to me like everything that she had tried to do in the standard model didn't work Uh, ultimately it didn't work it worked for periods of time but ultimately it didn't work and when she died I had a really strong reflective point like am I practicing the most effective medicine possible and the answer was no so I started to look for that and um, Iboga and Ibogaine, we can talk about the differences later, um, they come out as the most deep cleansing addiction interrupter that we know on the planet, bar none. That is a, a pretty profound statement. I believe that it's legal in Canada right now, but it's illegal in the U.S., right? It's technically illegal in five countries in the whole world. 
and the U.S. is one of them. Uh, doesn't doesn't surprise me. It, it's been on my list of, of things I'd like to try in the right circumstances for mm, oh, about 15 years since I first read about it. It, it seemed like one of those things that could be uh, actually it just help drive personal awareness. I don't have an addiction issue, and I'm I'm not a I'm not particularly a recreational drug user. Never have been uh, my whole life. Uh, I I'm not a uh, I'm not a frequent pot smoker at all, um, but I do believe that some of these things, like the ayahuasca I've done with uh, with a shaman in Peru, uh, have transformational potential for people who are not sick or are not addicted, because there's very few people who are, say, fully enlightened. <laughs> there's always room. There's always room for us to do a, a little bit <laughs> always, more. Oh yeah, there's, there's always more work to do. So, so you're targeting this at people who are in a pretty dark place. Uh, I've I've worked with addicts, I, I've known addicts, and, and there's a lot of suffering that happens there. What uh, what about for the rest of the people listening to this? Is this something that you know, your average person who meditates might consider trying the next time they go to a country where it's legal? Or is this something that, like, unless you're really kind of screwed up, like kind of steer clear, because apparently it's a really rough experience? Uh, I think the for the average person, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Okay. Um, if somebody's never hiked before, I wouldn't say go try Everest. <laughs> That's a fair point. All <laughs> right. And if you do decide to go to Everest, please have a guide and know your route and go really trained well with some deep preparation. You know, so there's all there's these 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 things that help maximize the potential for success. Um, most people, I don't believe, require ibogaine. Uh, most people could do a lot of personal development work for sure. And most people, that's, I would say the same thing about many of the psychedelics. They're, they're not probably right for most people where that person is at that given time. Because ideally, in my experience, it, those, those interventions require a fair bit of personal development work and deep respect. Ahead of time, you're saying? Ahead of time. And meditation is a great preparation practice to head into any experience like that with. Because on the other side, this is where the rubber meets the road is people are going to open up in the experience. They always do. And it's amazing that I can say, okay, yeah, preparation is great. And oftentimes at Crossroads, we see people right off the street, heroin junkies for years come in and have an amazing experience. And... Well, it's pretty profound to see their neurochemistry and their entire physiology and, and the, their entire being be transformed in a 36 to 48 hour process. It's amazing to watch that happen. And still, that's just one blip in the radar. That's the, that's the CPR, so to, so to speak. It's the crisis point uh, recalibration. And so crisis drove them to that experience and the integration will help them maintain the benefits of that experience moving forward in their life. Just like taking your meditation off the cushion into life or taking your yoga off the mat into life. The integration is where they get to to maintain the gains of the new trajectory, the new self that's awakened. But if somebody goes back into their usual home home of their usual environment, the usual home stressors, the usual kind of lifestyle, um, that's when I've seen people do not very well at all because they just thought they could have this big experience, they get completely opened up and they try and jump right back into life again and, and have a really rocky road. 
These medicines deserve their due deep respect with preparation, a good safe experience, and really strong integration. So for the average person, um, I think that there are things to do before to prep that person so that they have the best chance for success. But yes, we do take people in crisis mode all the time, and, and they can do well too. Dr. Martin, we just talked about a, a 36 to 48 hour transformative experience, which is a relatively short amount of time for transformation. What happens at your clinic? You, you take someone in who has a serious problem with, uh, with heroin or cocaine. Uh, these are addictive drugs. And they walk in the door and what happens? So the process starts before they walk in the door. They talk to a coach from Being True to You who helps them prepare for the experience. When they arrive in San Diego on Mondays, which is the day when our patients are scheduled, we pick them up from the airport and we drive them to the clinic in Tijuana. We take the lab work, we do an EKG, we make sure they're healthy, and we stabilize them on pharmaceutical opiates. So we cannot give them heroin for obvious reasons, but we can give them morphine so that they're comfortable. We wait a couple of days to get to know them, to make sure that they're healthy and that other underlying issues uh, that they have are treated and surfaced. And then usually on Wednesday night, they get treatment with Ibogaine. So you give it to them at night. Do they drink it, snort it, smoke it? I'm assuming most people listening have not heard of Iboga or Ibogaine Correct. or know the difference. Yeah, so the Ibogaine is given in capsule form. It's a white powder. It's a, a salt made from the uh, Iboga shrub, which contains just Ibogaine, which is the principal alkaloid in the Iboga. Okay. So they take a, a capsule. How much do they take? Well, it's depending on body weight and depending on the addiction. Um, generally, we're giving patients anywhere from 16 up to 20 milligrams per kilogram. Um, that is a pretty hefty dose, which is a very strong experience. And the reason why we give these, these big doses is because we have to overcome the withdrawal from opiates. If we okay. were to use a lower dose, then in the subsequent days, they might exhibit some residual withdrawal symptoms, which then we have to, to, to address. I'm considering coming down there um, mm -hmm. if, if, I, if it's kosher. Uh, with all the medical and whatever approvals, um, because I'd, I'd like to experience this in a, in a safe setting and see if there were improvements in my life that I wasn't expecting. Um, if someone who came down like me who was not in, uh, uh, not in, in an addiction crisis, what would a typical dosage be? So the dosage that we use for what we call psycho-spiritual patients, it's between anywhere from 8 to 12 milligrams per kilogram. And we have okay. a separate program set up for patients who don't have addictive um, you know, behaviors, or at least not substance abuse disorder, and uh -huh. that is over the weekend. So it, we try not to mix okay. patient populations. Oh, that, that makes good sense. So my, my biohacking addiction, where I keep sitting <laughs> in hyperbaric oxygen chambers, you can help me with this? <laughs> Correct. If you consider that to be a problem, then... No, I don't. <laughs> but, all right. So, so they come in, they take the capsules. How soon are they going to start feeling a little wonky? It can take anywhere from 45 minutes up to two hours before okay. they feel the effects of the medicine. And when does the projectile vomiting start? <laughs> so, yeah, patients do experience nausea, but not everybody vomits. And it's, okay. uh, it is a movement-induced nausea. So it's, uh, the, the medicine causes something called ataxia, which is an inability to coordinate body movement. And when okay. patients get up and they move their head too quickly, then, yes, uh, vomiting can occur. 
So basically, if you saw me dancing, you've seen ataxia. So I, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so we have people who are going to be moving slowly or throwing up if they don't. Uh, then what do they experience? So I think the best person to talk about this at the end, she has talked All to right. thousands of people before and after I began. So she can really explain the experience in great detail. All right, Deanne, uh, hook us up. What's going to happen if we swallow one of these white pills? So, yeah, Ibogaine is quite an experience. It has about four phases to it, two phases uh, for the first 12 hours. So typically when we do the medicine, you're going to do it overnight. So you would start maybe around 8.30 p.m. at night, 9 o'clock, something in there. Um, as Martine says, the medicine's effects will start to hit uh, maybe within the first hour, but we're looking at between two and three hours um, really escalating up to its peak. The first phase that people move into is what's called the visionary phase. Um, in the visionary phase, people are going to experience a hallucination with all five senses. So they'll start um, feeling or hearing auditory hallucinations, start to see some visual tracers if their eyes are open on the outside, eyes closed, you're going to start to see uh, visions, kind of like dreamlike visions within your mind. Um, you can start to even smell things, taste things, and feel things that aren't there. So it's quite an intense experience in terms of um, the psychoactive properties of ibogaine. Um, the visionary experiences are more like a dreamlike experience than any other medicine. So when you go into this, and I'll just say maybe two-thirds of people see visions, so not everybody sees visions, but of the people that do, um, there are dreamlike visions that give a life review in more of a non-linear fashion. So again, the best way to explain it would be a dreamlike state where there's just flashes of images um, throughout a person's life. It's almost like the mental files within somebody's brain are just being opened up and all of this information, all of these images, all of these memories, um, things that people remember or don't remember. It could even be things um, from a past lifetime or from um, ancestral experiences because we don't always remember these experiences and we know we haven't had all of them. But all of this stuff just starts to unleash and it's like watching a movie on the back of your eyelids as you go through your whole entire journey from birth until where you are now. And in this experience, you know, your, your body is energetically pulsating and vibrating pretty hard. So you're laying there still, like Dr. Martin says, you might feel quite ataxic little bit um, slightly paralyzed, you don't feel your body, you just lay there still. And the more still that you are, the easier it is actually to relax into the experience. But as you lay there, you'll feel this like heavy pulsation going through your body, maybe a tingling sensation, sometimes a, a buzzing um, around your head. You might start to feel a little bit warm, might cycle back between cold and hot. And so the intensity of it is staying relaxed as much as possible mentally and physically um, through all of these different kinds of hallucinations so that you can be present for the experience. And in the experience, it's, it's very different what comes up for people, but that is a common explanation that people have is this visionary experience that's providing them a life review that is opening up all those mental files so they can see where they're blocked, where there's unfinished business in their life, where maybe the 
um, false belief systems are, the insecurities, the judgments, just all that stuff that we carry that blocks us that we usually don't have access to. A lot of people will say that they ha feel like they've had a hundred or a thousand hours of therapy in just one night's work because there's no um, third party interrupting that flow. It's just you inside of your psyche navigating through the inner workings of your mind. And in this experience, you're able to see how you have been conditioned since birth to see yourself, others, and life in a very particular way. And so it's a very um, therapeutic experience. It's self-assisted therapy, really, as you're in here. The strategies and what we do in our preparation and our training is to surrender the comfort zone so that you can relax and melt into this experience again so you can show up and do work with the medicine because there's a lot of opportunities in these 12, 24, and 36 hours, but you have to be able to settle yourself enough through all of the psychoactive properties of Ibogaine, which is quite a lot. It sounds like uh, quite a trip, so to speak. <laughs> the, there are lots of people listening who are philosophically opposed to hallucinogens, um, actually for reasons I don't understand. I believe it's my biology. I should be able to use whatever chemicals I want in my own biology because it's mine. Uh, but that is a, a somewhat radical view. I get it. Uh, and First of all, is there any addiction potential for this stuff that lasts for 36 hours, makes it so you can't move and throws up? <laughs> like, are you going to get addicted to Ibogaine? No. <laughs> and anybody who does Ibogaine will tell you that uh, that's, that's not possible. <laughs> yeah, the, like the world's harshest masochist could not be addicted to this stuff, correct? Highly unlikely. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, so just so that's really clear, this is not, and, and would you take it and go to a party? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is so far removed from the stereotype of a hallucinogen. You don't you don't take Ibogaine and go on the roller coasters at Disneyland. Like it, it it's it's just not what it's for and and what what you do. So there are people who who need to hear that who are listening who who are just saying oh these guys are like going to go get high and say it's it's for addiction. It, it's not like that. It, it's a, a profound experience. But there are still people who say like I don't want to do something like that and. There are ways of accessing these states. Like I've done holotropic breath work with Stan Groff, the guy who invented it. He used LSD with his 10,000 patients until it was illegal, and he replaced it with breathing. Mm -hmm. And then there's float tanks. I have a float tank actually about 25 feet from me in, at, here at Bulletproof Labs on Vancouver Island. So how does the, the depth and length and just how does the experience of Ibogaine compare with like floating or with holotropic breath work? I they're, they all have some similarity. You know, when Lily first started experimenting with sensory deprivation tanks, uh, he did it as a ex personal exploration modality. He was re really wasn't even looking at the physiologic effects. Um, and all of those methodologies you just talked about, as well as fasting and going on vision quests and doing a whole host of other practices, have the same effect. And what are we doing? We're trying to separate our conscious ego that tries to control everything, we're trying to, to separate that from a deeper, truer sense of who we are and who we can potentially become when we're not addicted to a variety of things like work or sex or drugs or distraction or, or whatever it is. Or Facebook, <laughs> right? Because right? we live in such a busy society 
mm-hmm. where trauma is not really held in the understanding of a sacred container that can be duly processed. It was, I, I was just reading, so I'm finishing up a book right now. And I asked, um, I just posted out there to some friends and I said, send me some of your most inspiring quotes or stories. Cause I'm, I'd like everybody's input and we'll, we'll put this into the book. And, um, somebody sent me this really cool story about, um, one of the Rwanda, um, genocide survivors when there was just mass murder. It was horrendous. And there was UN aid workers that went in for psychological relief work to help people, um, really decompress the trauma. And we, um, in our Western view of psychology and trauma and our own mindset about how to address it, went to go intervene in the spirit of benefit and (laughs) the, the, the aid workers got kicked out by the Rwandan survivors because the story goes, um, these guys, the, you, you sent people to help us and they, they didn't, uh, they didn't have any respect of dance or movement to move the trauma through. They had to sit in cubicles by ourselves with no light, no community, talking about things that made us feel horrible. What kind of, <laughs> what kind of support is that? We had to kick them out. <laughs> right? It was like, it was, and it just, it really brought me back to a reflection point of, we don't know what we don't know. We're, we're taught from our particular mind, particularly from medical training, we're taught that trauma looks a particular way and you treat it a particular way. And so what, what we have the opportunity to do now is to really just have a broad spectrum discussion about what is trauma, what is personal development, what are the, what are the variety of op- options and opportunities to come into a healing experience, what do most people experience in the midst of something that could be described as a hallucinogen or a psychedelic, but it might be simply something that has tribal custom that's been used for hundreds, if not thousands of years for personal relief of trauma, or if you're not healing from something particularly traumatizing for at least a spiritual experience that can be akin to an awakening. So it's not a global prescription, but when you start to look at the data and you start to normalize people's experience um, going through the process of a natural medicine and receiving immense benefit with a relative low side effect profile when it's held well, it's it kind of there's no selling that needs to happen. It's a pretty obvious potential opportunity, and for those that decide to go down that route, for many people. Um, it's, it's beneficial when it's legal and offered in a good way because right now it's not legal. Many of the psychedelic medicines in this country are not legal, so people are finding other means to do them. And that doesn't mean that you're stopping the use at all. You know, Chasing the Scream talk, talked about that when um, Portugal legalized all drugs of abuse and drug use went down and crime rates went down and mortality went down and over, overdose went down because... There, there, there wasn't the war, and then everything that had been spent on the war was put into social infrastructure and education and safe-use clinics and connection. And then all of a sudden, when you're connected to your friends and family, there's, no, there's not as much as a desire to disconnect, which is really what you know, drugs of abuse do. And 
painkillers too is people are just trying to disconnect from pain and it's understandable there's a lot of pain in the world right now there's a study that recently made the rounds where they took mice or rats that were addicted to cocaine and when they studied it they said well they'll take the cocaine until they die they drink it from their bottle but if you put them in a fun environment with friends, they actually just quit drinking the cocaine water and drink the normal water. Like they go off of it, right? Uh, which is totally. like, is community one of the cures for addiction? Uh, which I, I think you just highlighted there. But you also talked about trauma and some of these other technologies. So we have Ibogaine and we haven't really dug in on the 5-MeO-DMT that you also use. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But you talked about fasting and uh, and things like that. So I've, I've fasted in a cave in the desert on a four-day vision quest led by a shaman I have a electromagnetic computer controlled stuff that'll put you in an out of body experience very quickly, eight feet from my head right now. It's not turned on, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and I, I do this 40 years of Zen neurofeedback thing where I've, I've left my body countless times, all in the, the course of understanding more about like what's going on inside there. I started out on this path with like tons of trauma. Like I, I was born with a cord wrapped around my neck and I've, you know, repatterned birth PTSD. And for people to say, oh God, quit whining. You know what? Pound sand guys, like that had a profound effect on my life and I fixed it, but I had to acknowledge that it had an effect in order to fix it. And using hallucinogens can help people become aware of traumas. They're not aware of, they're totally invisible. And then when you fix that, or when you become aware of it, then you can process it. And it sounds to me, not having tried Abigain, but having tried DMT and having tried ayahuasca, like there's a commonality there where they, they let you gain awareness of these patterns that are happening in your body or in your life that are invisible to you. And am I saying this right? Is this what's actually happening? Yeah, I think that's, that's well said. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It allows you to take a, a different perspective. Um, many patients that come to us have a history of sexual trauma, especially female patients. And uh, Ibogaine allows them to enter this state of being an observer in the room where the trauma happened um, but without an emotional attachment to the experience. So there's no emotional pain, but they're able to see this through the eyes of an adult. So if the trauma happened when they were ch children, then that got encoded in a certain way. And they're able to recontextualize this experience. A lot of the trauma is encoded um, before the age of five. So it is mm -hmm. uh, pre-verbal. So we don't really have access to it through normal psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. And, and that's why it's so hard to, to access these these memories, but with Ibogaine, you're, you're really able to go back and even see memories you don't know you had um, and really work through them and either forgive, forget, or let go of certain things that are not serving you. So I, I know people, in fact, even family members who are profoundly disturbed by the idea that you might have memories that you don't know you have. <laughs> How can you have a memory you don't know you have? It means you didn't remember it. Right, like, help me understand that, or help actually help listeners understand. That. I know very well that I was hiding things from myself, but but for someone who hasn't experienced that, can, can you like explain it a little bit better? Yeah, the uh, the subconscious mind is like a tape recorder, and it records everything. And there have been countless studies that have looked at this through hypnotherapy, and hypnotherapy is a classic psychiatric resource tool to uncover hidden memories, and it's sim similar to the work of facilitating deep medicine work like we're talking about here with psychedelics. Um, it takes a lot of training to know how to do it well, to do it skillfully, to do it with clean energy, with without trying to shape it, without trying to make anything happen, but just simply 
being a supportive witness to allowing the experience to come on to the screen so that the person reliving it and healing can see it happen. And like um, Dr. Polanco said, to relive it from the, the, the place of a more dispassionate observer and then to have a corrective ex experience so that it can be resolved. So we know that much of the developmental um, psychological framework is set in the persona by the age of, say, four or five. That comes from a mountain of child developmental yeah. psychological research in the 60s and 70s. And we know that the language centers and memory centers connection are myelinated and formed around that same age of like four to five, six years old, about the time we go into elementary school. So you have so much of the personality that's set by, say, five years old. And so much of that personality is set in a way that's difficult to access because the, the brain centers and neural pathways had not yet even formed to allow language for that experience to be held in memory over time. So it's physiologically challenging to access that. Some people have amazing recall, a very early experience, and it's phenomenal to see that happen. And no one's, I, don't, I haven't seen a unified theory as far as why some people have that better experience. And I don't think it's like, because most people have had such shitty childhoods that they repressed it. I think some people just have great recall. It's fairly uncommon. Most people do not have great recall prior to four. And so it's difficult to get into that early stuff. And so it can be um, amazing to see what is revealed. And you just, you just talked about two amazing experiences that you had revealed. Um, and something like flotation therapy can get you to that space because it's such a deep disconnection. It's also the first time we've been without sensory experience since we were conceived, right? No gravity, no sight, no sound, no temperature. Um, so most of what the brain is fielding goes away and then you have this like, the, the subconscious has the opportunity to now kind of paint itself back onto a blank canvas in the tank. It's Floating is a phenomenal ally for just about any work because anybody can do it. Um, and so it can be really both fascinating to see what comes up and it can be scary, particularly if, if somebody has a suspicion that something's there that they really don't want to look at. Well, you've got to be willing to look at some scary stuff to be to, to choose to go into the, the psychedelic work. And usually, again, you know, a lot of the people that we see, particularly at Crossroads, that have been addicted to heroin, they're in crisis. Yep. And they're at that choice point. Like, if I don't make an intervention now, I'm going to die. Right? So they're already in crisis mode, willing to do whatever it takes to make a significant shift. Not, not everybody's at that crisis point. So it can be really rocky. And I think that's why the integration work is even more important. And Stan Groff would talk about that too when he talked about spiritual emergence. He wrote a great book with his wife called Spiritual Emergence. Mm -hmm. And it was like the spiritual emergency of all of the, the reclaimed trauma that's now on the scene that, that has the opportunity and the privilege and the requirement to be processed and integrated well, as well as the new self that's now cleansed coming online and realizing like, whoa, holy cow, 
maybe I don't want to live the way I've been living, and that means I'm going to make all these changes that can be kind of rocky. It, it, it requires a lot of support on the other side. And I think it's important to mention here, too, with the psychedelics, sometimes when people are in crisis or having a really strong emotional um, experiences in their life, it's difficult to sit down in meditation or even use things like float tanks for the duration that they would need to to be able to get into that state. And things like the plant medicines like Ibogaine, what they allow is that quick entrance into the deepest part of the psyche for people who don't have the capacity, the mental capacity or the patience to be able to engage in some of these other measures. We all know there's a lot of ways to access information, whether it's through therapy or hypnotherapy or meditation or float tanks or so on, but the plant medicine is going to invite somebody into that space immediately. So, so I, I'm relatively well known for saying, hurry, meditate faster, um, <laughs> which like, oh, come on. But, but here's the deal. I meditate with electrodes on my head. Uh, that, that's the whole thing around the 40 years of Zen. And it's called that because it's like a lifetime of meditation in seven days. You can put your brain in a state where it, you probably wouldn't get there even if you meditated all week. And so I'm, I'm fundamentally lazy. If I do breathing exercises, I'll have my heart mass sensor attached. So when I do it wrong, I get a signal and I can do it right. And, and this is just about return on unit of, of effort, right? So what it sounds like here is that if you're going to spend three days or seven days, however long it ends up being, um, really pushing, really working on, on making progress, you could float for an hour a day or two hours a day until your skin gets really dry, uh, and you'd get some value from that. And that would be more value than if you sat in a dark room and meditated. But if you went down a crossroads and you tried uh, ibogaine in a structured setting or maybe the DMT that you guys use, uh, you might make more progress in the same amount of time. It, it, am I saying that accurately? Absolutely. And you know, I'll add on that, what's amazing when you're in that space is that the information or the messaging that your own self is communicating to you is exaggerated. So it's such a powerful time to really monitor and observe the different voices in your head that are controlling your daily patterns, your cognitive patterns, your emotional patterns, your behavioral and relational patterns are all stemming from these core beliefs. And when you're under the medicine, everything becomes magnified. So it's much easier to draw out the information that you need so that you can see what's blocking you and you can see what you need to do to change to move forward. So yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so I, for people listening to this now, you're going, all right, like this is a little bit crazy. If this is the kind of thing that, that's interesting to you, then potentially a, a ceremonial healing kind of use of one of these substances might go on your bucket list somewhere. And it's not easy to do, it's not cheap, and it's not fun. <laughs> you might have a peak experience, <laughs> but few peak experiences come without a lot of other work that comes along with them, at least in, in my experience. Uh, now, how would you know if someone walked in the door would would you how would you know? Do you use the ibogaine side of the treatment you use, or would you use five meo DMT? So yeah, the majority of patients that come to Crossroads are using opiates. Um, okay. By definition, the people that uh, are admitted into the psycho spiritual program they don't have substance abuse disorders. But yeah, we use both medicines. Um, okay. The one that everybody gets is ibogaine, and the one that's optional is five meo DMT. We do have practitioners that work with 5-MeO-DMT, and that can be scheduled separately, but that would not be at the facility. And the reason why we have the clinic is to have that medical container 
okay. to be able to give this substance safely. Got it. So the DMT would be something where you, you work with an outside practitioner, okay? So you, you wouldn't stack them on top of each other, which seems insane, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, they're given uh, several days apart. They're not given okay. together. All right. That seems like that would you probably pick pieces of your brain off the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, what if you are, say, addicted to sugar, which there's a lot of people overstating, oh, sugar triggers the same dopamine receptors as cocaine, therefore, you know, it, it's that evil. Well, it, it's actually not very good for you. Uh, but I would say there's probably a difference uh, because when I put cocaine in my smoothies, it's a different result than sugar. Just saying. Uh, <laughs> Are you still using coffee <laughs> at that point? Can, I'd like to answer that just on a personal note, yeah, if I could. Yeah. And then, and I think Martine can 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 give you a little bit more uh, of the backstory too. Um, that was exactly what happened for me with ibogaine. Okay. Um, I actually, after my sister died. Um, I started traveling, and about two months later, I did Iboga for the first time in Costa Rica. And I did it twice, and it was 40 hours both times, and it was oh. a train wreck. It's, it's, like, like, it's like giving birth. Like, 40 oh hours is gosh. intense. 40 okay. hours, right. It's somewhere, it's, it's, the equi- it's somewhere a mixture of feeling like you're getting rolled over by a steamroller and on a jackhammer at the same time <laughs> for 40 hours. And so, but needless oh. to say, it was, a, it was profoundly centering because <laughs> at some point you just have no other option but to let go and surrender yeah. to the process. And um, about a year later, when Dr. Polanco invited me to come on board with the Crossroads, um, I said, yeah, I'd love to know what you guys are doing. And in order to be on board, I need to experience it so that I understand how you're, how you're working with it. So I went down to Mexico and I did I began. And, um, the next day after treatment, I walked by a plate of fruit and some, I think some muffins or something like that for breakfast. And I walked by it and I didn't even flinch. And it was only until I got halfway down the hall that I looked back at that plate and I realized, oh my gosh, I had absolutely no charge on sugar. Yeah. And I didn't realize I had a charge on sugar until there was no charge on sugar. And then looking back at my life, I've had this lifelong addiction to sugar. And it just came up close and personal. And I didn't go for that. It wasn't in the forefront of my mind, but I recognized it was gone, absolutely gone the day after treatment. And it stayed gone. Interestingly enough, from time to time, if I'm stressed, if I'm sleep deprived, if I'm you're traveling a lot, it'll flare up a little bit and I and I notice it because I'm I'm present to it now. But I didn't notice it before and then it's it's the same kind of thing that you just mentioned. Addictive neurochemistry is addictive neurochemistry. It doesn't matter what you're addicted to. So the fascinating thing about Ibogaine is that it's it is an addictive neurochemistry interrupter, particularly for the things that we use that would have a drug kind of effect, whether they're drugs of abuse or alcohol or sugar or tobacco. Addictive neurochemistry is addictive neurochemistry. Ibogaine is not necessarily globally effective for everything on the addictive spectrum equally. However, it is impactful for addictions, whatever they are. And so that's the personal kind, because because you asked that question, it was so well stated. 
Yeah, and I'll just quickly add, since I'm the one that talks to people, you know, right after the experience and weeks after the experience, that many people come in wanting to detox off of something like opiates and discover later on that they have no more desire for caffeine, nicotine, marijuana, sugar. So we're seeing a lot of addictions being in, um, interrupted without even the intention to do so. So it's that powerful. It's happening yeah. without intention. Now I'm going to step into uh, into something here. The difference between use and addiction. So I, I use one milligram of nicotine spray every day or two, and I've been doing that for a long time. And I can go without it; I go with it. But it's a performance enhancing substance. Do you draw a difference between use and abuse? And also, caffeine is a performance enhancing substance. I kind of like it, um, but I go off of it when I'm going to do intense meditation because it lowers alpha brain waves. Let's say, but where do you guys draw the line between an addiction and a use? I it, it really comes down to your ability to willfully control it. There you go. So if, if it's something that you're choosing to do on a regular basis and it works for you, like food, water, exercise, <laughs> right? I mean, those we do those every day. They, they work for us. There's a yeah. beneficial effect. It becomes abuse when it becomes a negative effect and we have a yeah. hard time willfully controlling it. Yeah, and one of the things I like to talk about with clients, too, is ad addictions and um, substance abuse tends to take you towards your worst self, whereas passions and Ooh. healthy dependencies um, tend to take you towards your best self. That, that is an incredibly simple lens, and, and I really like that uh, because I, I don't know that there's an argument. Actually, there is, there's even an argument for using heroin for your best self, uh, which is probably only halfway offensive to you guys. Um, my wife, uh, Dr. Lana is, or she was a drug and alcohol addiction emergency doctor in Stockholm, Sweden. So she worked with heroin addicts, usually ones who are about to die, uh, but went through a lot of the, probably some of the similar kind of training that you would have in, in your prep work here. And they had an interesting case where a group, like the most influential attorney and like someone high in the government and some other people had been using low dose heroin pharmaceutical grade for 20 years as an anti-aging substance. They, they were using it three times a week, very low doses, much like you would use uh, low-dose naltrexone or something to, uh, to lower. So these people were walking around looking 20 years younger than they should have. They were buying their heroin from the CEO of a local pharmaceutical company who made it special for them. And they got busted and all got in big trouble, and it was all a big scandal. I don't know how long ago this was. But so there's probably a case for those for those guys where even they maybe were going towards their best self, even if they were using something that for the vast majority of people would have been a complete train wreck, right? So your definition of are you using it to move towards your greater self or are you doing uh, something else that moves you towards your, what you call it, your worst self, your not great self? I, I forget, but I, I love that lens because that, that's like the worst example I can think of, but it still works. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think I may have read that from one of Gabor Mate's books, he does a comparison between addiction and passion, and I believe that's where I got that from. That's where you got that from? Cool. Clarifies uh, that, you know, addiction clearly moves you towards your worst self, whereas passions, and I just added in there, healthy dependencies, because there certainly are healthy dependencies that we need, like food, are going to move you towards your best self. So this is a measure that we use in working with our clients, because they'll ask us, you know, is this a problem for me or not? And then we'll use questions um, like that to help them identify, is this helping you be more productive, uh, more, um, you know, mentally um, clear, uh, emotionally stable, and more productive in your life? Or is this 
causing you to drop the ball in areas of your life and you know things are kind of falling by the wayside so so Deanna, our our mutual friend uh, joe polish from the genius network uh, who first introduced us is doing a documentary on addiction. He's really working to to improve the quality of addiction care, and uh, he just interviewed Gabor Mate, and he, I think Gabor was in Vancouver. So I'm, I'm I'll likely have him on the show soon to talk about this as well. Because what I found in my own path, and just from working with with clients, and and just from becoming aware of the way the brain and the mind and and uh, whatever you want to call it, the, our meat works is that addiction plays a much bigger role in some people's lives than they're aware of. And, and it's almost by definition meant to be subliminal. And by the time you recognize it, it's probably been there for a while and it's probably been causing damage uh, and to your relationships or to yourself or all the other things that it does because it's sneaky. Uh, and that if we can get a handle on that via whatever mechanism and we can show people when it's happening and let them intervene sooner, it's actually doing a great service uh, for humanity. Um, are there other technologies uh, other chemicals, other techniques, uh, uh, transpersonal psychology, I don't know, other things like that, that you are interested in bringing into what you do before, during, or after uh, this kind of uh, this kind of treatment? Absolutely. I mean, there's uh, the whole spectrum from brain imaging that uh, can provide you greater insight and knowledge about what is actually going on, um, then neurofeedback, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, uh, direct current stimulation, obviously flotation, which we've already talked about, and then other interventions which are not technological but have been proven to work over probably thousands of years. Um, one of them would be even permaculture. So in ancient times when warriors would come back from, from battle and they were traumatized and they had what we nowadays call post-traumatic stress disorder, they weren't allowed to resettle in the villages right away. They were forced to work on the land for a year. And uh, just that reconnection with the soil and watching things grow and uh, it's tremendously therapeutic and I don't think it's being utilized enough. I mean in past uh, 100 years we've moved away from physical labor and exercise and we've even shut down psychiatric hospitals that all of them had farms and vegetable gardens where the, where the people, the patients would work and work up a sweat and grow their own food. And I think that that was an important component of, of the therapies, but it, it wasn't recognized. They thought it was slave labor, but in fact, that was immensely therapeutic. So um, Dr. Dan can also speak about different technologies. I think he was recently at a conference where they, when they mentioned uh, a bunch of them. Oh, cool. Um, do, do share. Yeah, many of them were the ones that uh, Martin just mentioned. It's everybody's new kind of flavor on what um, mm -hmm. magnetic stimulation devices are out there, like pulse electromagnetic stimulation devices or transcranial magnetic or transcranial direct current, um, um, frequency-specific microcurrent, and <laughs> um, alpha-theta brain state technologies. And actually, Dave, that's where you and I, or that's where I first heard about your name, is um, working with Jim Hart at the BioCybernet Institute in Sedona, because I was living in Sedona at the time. And so I... I had the opportunity, that was my first experience into EEG-directed neurofeedback. And now we're getting some really cool, sophisticated um, little briefca briefcase um, devices that will allow you to approximate that same experience. Um, you know, certainly with... You can leave your body with EEG unquestionably if it's set up right and, you know, you're in the right place for it. I, I, I was amazed mm -hmm. to find that you could do that kind of thing. 
Yeah, it's amazing. And um, photos, photic stimulation is another amazing one. There's a Lucian technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also from Sweden um, that has this rapid fire, particular pulse rate and intensity of LED light exposure. Mm-hmm. And you're like look, looking at a big LED light plate about a foot away from you. Yeah. And it has this pulse rate. And that, that for me was the most like an DMT out of body experience that I had ever had. Um, before I jumped out of the plane and then it was like, whoa, okay, that's kind of what that feels like. Um, yeah, so there's amazing. And, and the cool thing too about these technologies is similar to what you do is you stack these complementary yeah. and synergistic tools on top of one another to have an exponentially beneficial effect. And you put yourself in the laboratory and see what the, what the effect is, which is cool. And then you come back and tell everybody else. And that's essentially the, the definition of a shaman. It, the definition it of a shaman goes to the edge of the known, jumps off, has an experience, and comes back and tells everybody else what happened. <laughs> I think Terrence McKenna said that. Yeah, it's true, he did say that. It, it, there's a bit of a cyber angle to it now. Like, you know, if you're a, a traditional shaman using uh, plant medicines, they can arrest you for that. But right now, you know, if you're using flashing lights on your on your eyes, like, man, it's really hard to write. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really hard to write laws about that, given that the lights, mm-hmm. like the LED lights in your fixtures right now, are flashing. You just can't see them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know how they can control that. But my experience is that, in fact, one of the reasons that I, I really helped to popularize the idea of biohacking is that these things are all over the place, but most people aren't paying attention to what they can do to put you in these altered states. And, and high performance is an altered state, right? So what you're saying there is, you know, we, we definitely we definitely have more control. And, and most of those are affordable. Most of those are accessible. And most of those you can do in your garage without anyone's permission. And then you can talk about what you did without fear of being arrested for it. And that is how progress happens really, really rapidly. And I, I'm expecting to see like this huge wave of discovery there be, because we're taking this out of the hands of just neuroscience labs and we're putting these technologies out there in a way where they, they really have never been before. Are, are you as yeah. hopeful as I am or do you think bad things will happen? I'm super <laughs> hopeful. Okay. I'm super hopeful because it, we never had the opportunity to share this much information. Yeah. Like for example, through podcasts to so many people about cool things that are hitting people where they're at in desperation and in crisis. And they're looking for something outside the box because the box isn't working very well. I mean, we can see that in a variety of examples and, um, and people are thirsty and it's a pioneering spirit to be able to reclaim your own choice when you have options and, and to be able to reclaim your best self. And I, I'm extraordinarily optimistic. I think it's, I think it's still going to get a little wonky, um, but crisis is what moves people to change. Crisis, otherwise, we kind of get stuck in these just patterns, or you're just born as like a psychonaut and pioneering spirit, and you're always chasing it. Like in the rat park studies, even though some of the rats, even though all the rats were kind of hanging out with the rat friends in, in the park, there were still some rats that chose to experiment with Coke water. Right, so there's always going to be somebody who experiments. You just didn't have anybody overdosing because it was like, oh, I'll experiment. I'd still rather hang out with my friends. I was still just curious about what this Coke water thing was about. Yeah, totally. I'm uh, super hopeful. Super hopeful. Well, that that makes me feel good because you guys spend your your whole life studying this stuff, and I I spend a lot of time uh, working on it myself and, and sharing it with a, a small community. But I, I believe that that 
having a, a proper background and working with, with very uh, people just stuck in dark places is going to be more illuminating. Uh, you, you'll learn more and more quickly than I do working with, uh, you know, with high performers, some of whom, in fact, many of whom are using the same sets of chemical and digital technologies to increase their performance without doing the healing work first because they didn't need the healing work. And there's another set of high performers who needed the healing work, didn't know it, started down the high performance path and were like, oops, I guess I should remove that tack <laughs> in my foot that has always been there because I didn't know it was slowing me down. And they go through the act of you know removing whatever trauma is slowing them down and suddenly they're accelerating dramatically. And and that's one thing I'm I'm quite interested in and why I'm considering coming down there for one of your, your weekend experiences um, is that, you know, I imagine there's always something I could do a little bit better uh, or something else where I'm not aware of some nuance in, in my behaviors or in my own self-talk or whatever else it is. And I believe it's one of the best investments anyone can make is to invest in awareness or more consciousness because you then have more control over the way you treat yourself and the way you treat the other people. And basically you have more leverage to make the world a better place. And and so I, I think there's a role for Ibogaine in, in the work you're doing. And I'm, I'm grateful that you guys have, have spent all the time and energy putting together something that is very pioneering. And uh, um, I think it's amazing that you're on the show too. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Polanco has been doing this work for like 14 years and, um, and DM the same kind of trajectory in regards to the integration work. And it's allowed us through that time frame. It's allowed both of them and myself to, to keep constant, building the network of other providers who are sharing the same kind of message. So when you ask me if I'm hopeful, one of the reasons I'm hopeful is because I keep seeing so many other practitioners and medical providers and people from a variety of different traditions say the same thing about the benefit of helping us all wake up as quick as we can. So we're all starting to talk more and more about this, the same thing. And it's what um, Rupert Sheldrake would talk about, like the morphic field is building for this this rising and this revolution, this renaissance of medicine to happen right now. And I think we're perfectly primed to see it happen relatively quickly. Definitely in our lifetimes, especially if you extend your life by an extra 100 years through some of these techniques. But that's the topic for another podcast. I want to ask each of you the question. Normally I say, tell me your top three things that you would offer to someone who came to you and said, look, I want to perform better at everything in my life. What do I need to know? But I've got three of you. So like the genie who gives one wish to each person when there's three people. So one answer for each of you, the most important thing you would tell to someone who just wanted to be better at being human. Martin, let's start with you. I would say reading books. Um, that's my teacher and I practice. I, I love to read. Um, and where I've learned the most. Awesome. Dan, what do you think? I always come back to the medicines. You know, do the due do, do diligence to find the best potential experience. Do homework, listen to podcasts, interview people, research it, and, and wait. Kind of like finding your ideal partner. Don't settle. Wait for the perfect yeah. time to arise. And, and, and go into the medicine space because there's no, I haven't seen anything for our time, for the Western mind, for the way we live, haven't seen anything more effective and more efficient at helping the average person wake up as quick as they can. Uh, very, very well said. Uh, Deanne? Yeah, great answers. There's a lot of ways to answer that. Something that's really come into my mind for our conversation here and discussing hope for the future is just recontextualizing 
the way that we see suffering. I mean, right now when we're talking about addiction and trauma and uh, other types of emotional suffering, we tend to see it as an unfortunate circumstance or as a pathology that we need to treat or mitigate. And I think a big thing that we need to do moving into the uh, new era, if you want to call it that, with um, our health and wellness is to look at suffering as an opportunity. Um, when it, Out of the many years that I've been working with addiction, I see so many people still looking at it as a disease and as an illness and as something that we, again, an unfortunate circumstance. But what I see is this is an opportunity for transformation. And suffering is probably a big reason that we came here, so that we could dive deep down into our shadow side and experience that darker aspect of ourselves so that we can come back into the reemergence of our true self. So one of the biggest things I think we can do is look at our suffering and our pain and our problems in a different light. As long as we keep looking at it as something that we are in resistance to, it's going to continue to grow and we miss the point of learning and transformation. But as soon as we step into this light and we see the opportunity to rediscover ourselves, to better know ourselves, to um, identify what our place and our purpose here on this planet is, something starts to shift and no longer are we in resistance to our own selves. Now we are in acceptance and that transformation just starts to happen automatically, which allows us to engage more fully in the plant medicines or the books that we're reading or the conversations that we're having. Um, beautifully well put. Uh, thank you. Now, for our listeners, we're going to have a transcript of everything we said with links and all that sort of stuff up on, uh, up on bulletproofexact.com. You'll be able to click anywhere on the transcript, and it'll take you to that section on YouTube so you can share just like that 30-second snippet of conversation, which is, which is a really effective way to share this conversation or parts that are most effective. We'll also have links to each uh, all the relevant websites, but for people driving, or better yet, people sitting in their office who aren't driving, uh, who are going to uh, want the URLs right now, uh, what are the URLs for, for Crossroads, uh, for, for being true to you, and, and the other things we should know about? So the, the URL for the website is crossroadsibogaine.com. That's I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E.com, crossroadsibogaine.com. Okay, Correct. got it. Mm-hmm. And then for being true to you, it's uh, just all spelt out, beingtruetoyou.com. Awesome. Well, uh, Dr. Martin, Dr. Dan, and Deanne, thank you for being on Bulletproof Radio. This is a really profound and, I think, impactful episode. I really, really am grateful for the work you're doing, and I, I know how, how much effort goes into taking someone who's stuck in addiction and helping them to come out. So I, I know that you put a lot of your own soul into that kind of work. So Keep doing what you're doing. It makes the world a better place. And hopefully this episode also did the same thing. Have an awesome day. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, thank you so much, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Bye. Bye. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Go out there and do something nice. And one of the things you could do for yourself is you could head on over to the Crossroads website if that's something that appeals to you and check it out. Maybe you'll do it, maybe you won't. Uh, by the way, I didn't mention this at the beginning. I have no deal with these guys. I've never been down there. Uh, it just seems like a very interesting group of people and interesting stuff. Uh, so there's, this isn't like a referral affiliate thing. It's just knowledge. And if it was an affiliate thing, I'd have told you ahead of time. The other thing you could do is remember that 
bulletproof cacao tea I talked about, think about picking some of that stuff up. It's got theobromine in it, which is a core part of what's in chocolate, and it's delicious, and you feel great when you're done drinking it. So I'm I'm a big fan of that, especially during winter when I don't really want like the hot chocolate we have. I just want the chocolate flavor, like a hint of that. I'm, I'm really feeling happy with that stuff lately. It's, it's been kind of making me feel good in winter. So have an awesome day. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.